Next week, it's, it's been a while since we've actually done a, <clears throat> a proper Christmas series, and so we're going um, to sit down and celebrate the fact that it is officially the Christmas season, that it has arrived. <clears throat> but I want to talk about the essential nature of, of essentially what, the, what Jesus in the manger represents for us. And so Christmas is here, at least the, the, the month is, obviously. And um, what is interesting to me about this season is that it tends to highlight... I mean, just honestly, what appears to be some of the best and the worst segments of our uh, society. And so Christmas is a singular word. It, it represents a singular season for us, very particular meaning for the Christian, which is what we're going to talk about over these next weeks. But ironically, it, it has some very diverse understandings. People see this holiday um, very differently, depending on who you are and what your background is. And so uh, for some of us, perhaps maybe the great majority of us that have been Christians for some time, um, Christmas is kind of like a super nostalgic holiday. I know for me, I did not become a Christian until I was in my mid-20s, but uh, it, the, the songs we sing and kind of lights and, of course, the particularly cold weather in Florida all remind me of like younger, uh, my young upbringing with Christmas. It just evokes these great memories, right? So some, for some of us, I think this might be favorable or positive, good childhood stuff. For others, um, it's undeniable, <clears throat> and all you have to do is look at the week of Thanksgiving to, to validate this. Christmas is kind of like, I call it the great holiday, of a genie in a bottle. And what what happens is is everybody kind of saves up their sensational gift list, all the things that they have always wanted. This is the time of the year where they feel uh, the freedom to kind of lavish themselves and to, and to, you know, to give and to receive gifts, right? Some of you, I know, um, are not from the area, and so you will be packing up your families and driving across the state or the country. Uh, others of you will have people driving uh, to you. I always like to point out at this time of year that it's interesting to watch the, how the religious climate, the religious and irreligious climate begins to change. So um, already, if you're watching the news, it's unfortunate that this happens, but um, you know, all the atheists rally to keep Christ out of Christmas while some of our more aggressive brothers and sisters in Jesus uh, start fighting to keep the Christ in Christmas, and some of them fight the good red cup uh, battle at Starbucks. You can see all these things, right? All of these kind of mixed messages and understandings and attitude, and I'm listing like probably, you know, 2% of what the the, the broader understanding of Christmas is, or at least what people's perceptions are of it. So all this is to say that Christmas, um, Christmas is really a time that I, I do deeply believe is filled with conflicting messages. And that's why over these next weeks, I think it's important for us to talk about this, fully recognize that not everybody's going to agree with this, but I want to talk about what Christmas means from the the Christian perspective. Because we do, as followers of Jesus, have a particular perspective, at least we should, about how we understand the nature of Christmas, and especially the kind of central event that we celebrate from it, uh, which is the birth of Jesus in the manger. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in in the Christian faith, the holiday is named after um, a guy who basically his name makes up 75% of the word. You know, you have Christ Mass, Christmas. You have Jesus Christ's name in this. And because he is central to the holiday itself for us, or at least the, the, the major theological significance that we celebrate his coming. And so this little Christmas series is designed to do uh, a couple of things. And I think there are, there are two main kind of, you know, thrusts, if you will, that I'm hoping we will derive from it over these next weeks. Um, first of all, I think it's always good in a time when we know things will, will be a little scattered this just gets busy this month and there are going to be lots of things competing for our attention. I feel like it's super important in seasons where we know uh, there's a high risk of, of convolution in every way that we actually have a, uh, a, a, a focus. We kind of know we're going to be pulled in a million directions, but we, we at least the top of our heads and in the depths of our hearts, we know that there is actually a singular thing we should be focusing on that really defines all those other directions. 
And secondly, I really do think this is a necessary conversation for us to revisit because it is so uh, central and vital to the current and future health of our church. And, you know, somewhat ironically, we celebrate Christmas once a month, but, but what it shows us is actually a heart attitude that God desires his people all over the globe, every single day of the year to, to embody. It sets, uh, it's a kind of a sensational event, at least at this point in history it is, that really gives us a very regular rhythm for the way that God wants us to live our lives. And so over these next weeks, I want to spend some time unpacking, both theologically and practically, the, what the true meaning of Christmas is and how it really does set the ultimate example for, for what a Christian life is, is supposed to look like. And we begin our study today by answering two important questions. And these questions, I might almost say it this way. We're going to introduce them today, but we will kind of come back to them over these next weeks. They are the, the guiding questions, if you will, that will shape everything we talk about up until the, uh, to Christmas Day in the creek. So the first is, why did Jesus come to earth? That's pretty central uh, because we, what we're celebrating right now, there's a great stained glass image of it behind me. We're celebrating the fact that, that Christ has come. Advent, um, the, the history of the Christian church, the reason we practice Advent is because it is meant to, to, the, to uh, the best that it can, evoke the same kind of expectation and anticipation that people had as they were waiting for the promise of the Messiah. So everything we do here is designed to, to reposture our hearts to recognize that Jesus has come. And as we, or I said last week, that he is going to come again. To, to a real degree, we are in the same position that the people before us were before Jesus came. We, just, we await his second return, okay? So it's really important to look at why Jesus came to earth. And then it's just as important to look at what, what his coming means for the way that we live our lives. Um, and I'd like to use these two questions to guide where we're going. So let's jump right in and, and answer the first question. There are obviously lots of ways we can answer this question. But I think the most significant way, the, the answer that really shapes all the other answers, is that why did God send Jesus to earth? Well, he was put in a manger, born in a manger, to show the world that God had put him on a serious mission. There's a major uh, implication that takes place in Luke chapter 2, 4 through 7. We read it in the other Christmas narratives, but it's very pointed here, and I'll just reread it so it's fresh in our minds. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. And remember, David, um, as we read here, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So this is, this is Luke's way of telling us the promise is about to be fulfilled. The line of David is about to be uh, flesh and blood fulfilled in Jesus. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so this is a very poetic way of talking about the, the central reason God has revealed himself on earth for us. This is uh, one of the foundational teachings of where we understand this concept of, of Christian mission or Jesus' mission at this point in history. He's an infant at this point, but what happens here sets the, pe- the precedent for the mission of God's church uh, globally, globally forever until Jesus returns again. And the mission of Jesus that we read about here in the Christmas story, it's incredibly central to Jesus' life. And if you've ever wondered... Um, why this is a guiding value for us, I, I want to explain, or at least take a quick minute to explain. At our church, there are five scriptural values that guide everything we do. A value for us is we understand that scripture teaches a certain set of things about who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is like. So we, we certainly have strong beliefs in critical areas. That would be our theology, our, our belief statement. But our values are the way that we express those beliefs. So when we say that Jesus has come to earth to show the world the love of God, that, that's, a, that's a theological position. But our value says, to some degree, we have got to figure out how to, 
how to become that or how to actually live that out because who God is, one of the, one of the realities of who God is is that he desires us to be like him. And so in this instant, we have this great example of, um, of, of a, a value, if you will, that we have at our church that shapes who we are and what we do. And values are important at, in any organization, especially in the life of a church, because a lot of what happens at our church doesn't happen accidentally. It happens because we are intentionally shaping these things. This is a priority for us. And so this, this value of what it means to be, to be missional or to be on mission for Jesus or perhaps a more clear, clear and practical way to explain this idea is that we as God's people are to live lives that are sent. That's the word I've used in here before. Sent into the world like Jesus was sent into the world. And so the manger gives us a pretty important truth about who Jesus is and how God wants to work in the world. He begins with Jesus and fulfills that work in us. You know, missional living is most clearly seen in the life of Jesus. It's the, he's the foundation of it all. And at its inception, at least in the New Testament, we certainly see God showing himself to the world in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, this thing, things change dramatically. The inception of mission, the way it's going to be until Christ returns, it begins when God sends Jesus to the earth in a manger roughly 2,000 years ago. And I love kind of touched on this a few weeks ago, but I love the fact that the Christian faith is filled with, with great irony all across the board. And so here you have, like, remember, today we're celebrating a major cataclysmic event. But the story we read about in Luke was not a major cataclysmic event, at least in culture's eyes at that point. This was essentially another kid being born in a, in a barn because there was no place for them to go. This is, this is a very lowly, at this point in history, and seemingly insignificant birth. It's just another body on the earth. But it's through this lowly thing that God reveals the ultimate way. He reveals a, an ultimate, a significant truth about how he desires us to live our lives. Again, it's, it's the, the lowly creates the precedent for, for great and grand things. And so to help us get a grasp on this, I want to read two things for you. Um, one I want to just share with you, in case you don't even know that we have values as a, as a church. I want to share with you how we understand mission. I want to read to you our value. And then I want to share with you a a quote that I think gives us a really good practical application as far as a a good description about what it means to to understand the manger and see how it affects our life. Both quotes really capture the heart and application of mission in our lives and as a church family. And so our value is this. The God of the Bible has always loved, listen to this, loved and relentlessly pursued his fallen creation. That means while you and I were far from him, him, uh, and, and in our current lives, when we are still far from him, when those rough days or weeks or months or years, um, it often feels like God might not be around. But the reality of what we see in Scripture is that God is always pursuing us. This is one of the promises he makes to us. He is going to pursue us. So we use this word relentlessly for a reason. The God of the Bible has always loved and relentlessly pursued his fallen creation. And mission is rooted in the nature and character of God. It's, something that he, it's not just something he does, it's something he is. At Restoration Church, or as a Restoration Church, our missional value influences everything we do. So mission is not merely an activity of the church. It is essential to our identity. To be a sent people means that the earthly work God began through Jesus is to be continued by God's church. And today, the, the parade, this is, a, this is a, a significant way of expressing this. Mission, you know, in our current world, unfortunately, the church world, we tend to think mission is like where we pack up our bags and go overseas for two weeks. And that's certainly true and important. But mission has such a broader application that oftentimes I wonder if many of us are on it. We just, the definition we have for it is not broad enough to actually validate the fact that we are. And so in our eyes, it is completely a a missionary venture 
to put our people in a float and just bless the community by, by playing wonderful music to help them understand, at least from our perspective, why we value Jesus Christ so much. That is a missionary effort. It doesn't have the traditional form of it, but nonetheless, all the work that has gone into this day and this week and this event after church is an example of a missional priority at our church. And so with that in mind, a kind of a practical example, I want to read to you a, a very practical definition uh, from a guy named Van Sanders who's been a great influence on my life. He's, a, he's what we call a Christian missiologist, with me, which means his life has been dedicated to understanding the sent nature of who God is and how that shapes our lives in the local church. And he explains mission like this. He says, remember, particular Christian perspective. When kept in the context of the scriptures, because we're talking about Christian mission here, the mission of God emphasizes that God is the initiator of his mission to redeem through the church a special people for himself from all of the peoples of the world. He sent his son, Jesus in the manger, for this purpose. And he sends the church into the world with the message of the gospel for the same purpose. So when we talk about the manger, the very reason Jesus was sent is the exact same reason God sends us. Now, that's the the reality, if you will, the theological reality. And even though we could spend the whole morning essentially quoting passages of Scripture and giving clear examples of how this is a a priority in God's heart, uh, in other words, what I'm saying is even though the mission of God has always been near to God's heart, since it's something that he is and does, um, that's a reality. We need to be reminded of the fact that this has not always been the case with his people. There are times uh, uh, in massive ways and sometimes in just I almost call them like benevolently neglectful ways. Mission is not a priority. Loving and being sent as Jesus was for us is no longer on our radar. And so, for example, um, I don't know how much you keep up with church trends. I do a lot because it's part of my responsibility. But there has been over the past five years, perhaps more than ever in my time pastoring, there's been what I would call a, a renewed emphasis on the mission of God. Now, that's, that's also birthed, I think, a lot of the church planning movements that we're seeing around the, cl- the country and the globe. And to one degree, that's encouraging. People are kind of re-embracing this. But think about the, the other side of this. The implication of this renewed emphasis, it points out that lots of people have, have walked away or had walked away from the very mission that Jesus established at his birth. And I think there's a pretty strong reason for this. And in our faith, because to a certain degree, we, we know Christianity is, is about Jesus. But one of the realities of worshiping Jesus is that we recognize there's a, there's a very strong love that he has for us. So to a healthy degree, the Christian faith is also about us. It's about God's relentless love and pursuit for us. And so when that, when that recognition of God, God is for us, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is unchecked, what tends to happen is in the Christian faith is it's very easy to get to the place where we want our faith to be more inwardly focused. It's more about us and our needs that it is about uh, the reality that that God calls us to live lives of sacrifice for other people and in the church world we call this a, this is a drift so it's it's a mission drift and the problem with this type of a drift with this inwardly focused thing which I'm not at all saying it's not important to to develop your faith and and recognize the individual nature of our relationship with Jesus. The problem is that the more we focus inwardly, individually and as a church, um, the more we create a significant problem individually and in the life of a church. This drift is not usually obvious. It typically happens very incrementally. And what happens is, is it makes it very hard to catch unless, and this is the reason we're talking about this, unless you are acutely aware of God's mission purposes for your life. So to correct the falsity, once again, in the Christian faith, we we need robust truth. 
So in a very timely way, this is what we're talking about over these next weeks. Because it is common uh, for, for all churches, but the one I'm most concerned with right now is ours. It's common for a church like ours now, you know, uh, firmly past the five-year mark to become susceptible to this drift. And there's a pretty obvious reason for it. Um, usually uh, in a church's kind of upbringing, if you will, in its early days, people are very enthusiastic about loving, reaching, and serving others in the, in the life of the church. And this is even true with people who come to Jesus. On the front end of the faith, there is always a more robust and energetic desire to, like Paul says, to kind of spread on the faith, pass the seeds of the gospel. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he's talking about. You know, what Jesus has put in us, we're responsible now for helping others to experience it. There's always a, uh, an enthusiasm that is typically associated with newness, whether that is a newness in the faith or newness in a church body. But what tends to happen is, as we mature as Christians or even as a church, we tend to feel like we graduate from that responsibility. And just a little side note, not even in my notes, I have a good friend that said to me on a, in a learning cohort where I was in another state, he said, you know, when he was um, when he was a younger man, this guy's my age, in his young 20s, people said, you know, um, be careful because you, uh, you have zeal without knowledge. You know, you're just ready to like change the world, but you don't exactly know how to do it, so you just blow stuff up and make a lot of mistakes. But the concern as we get older in the faith, more mature, is that we tend to have knowledge without zeal. That's the problem. So what ends up happening is, is we know all these things, but the, the robust passion to, to be on mission, to love Jesus and to serve others begins to fade. We start to substitute the central nature of mission, the very reason we are in Christ right now, because somebody recognized the reality of the manger and had the guts and courage to talk to us about what that meant for our own lives, we start to substitute the central nature of mission with something else. And there are lots of reasons why this happens. I shared one, but I want to share the root of it because I think it is a root that affects many issues in our world today. We really live in a, in a move on to something new culture. You know, we call these uh, fads in the modern world, but we, we live in a world that really is obsessed with newness with, with new ideas and things that are the latest and the greatest. And I'm not against the new stuff or the latest and the greatest. But the problem with the Christian faith is, while it always has a new edge, we always have the freedom to kind of express the faith differently. Um, there is a historical, unchangeable, immutable root of it. In other words, there are some things in the Christian faith that just don't change. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. And when we begin to substitute them for, for other things that might be lesser valued, we have a problem. And so the short of this is that we're told in our, our world that progress is almost always associated with, with something new. And that can be true, but it's not always true. A couple of examples, right? Many of you work in the business world. I did for quite some time before um, moving, you know, getting called into the ministry like this anyways. And um, you know, if you're in current, the current business world, you probably know that there are a, a slew of strategies, books, teachings, ideas that are hardwired to helping you understand how to succeed, how to be, how to be a great CEO, how to be a great sales you know, person or uh, what, whatever it is. Uh, and a lot of times, I mean, literally, you could spend your days reading book after book after book about new strategies because they just come out in the droves each year. You can see this in the political arena. I touched on this a couple of weeks ago where um, certain ideas, thoughts, uh, themes, if you will, projects, issues, they really matter today, but not necessarily tomorrow. It, you know, it's, it's, it's on the top of the mind today and forgotten in two years. 
Perhaps the most visible example of this right now is the pop culture phenomenon that America has seemed to embrace over the past 50 years. Uh, things like, I mean, it's just ironic. I used to get rid of clothes that were out of style, but now I know if I just put them in a drawer someplace, in five years I'll be able to wear them again. And, and the reality of that is they'll probably cost eight times what they cost when they were not really cool to, uh, to own. So I'm waiting for the day skinny jeans die. I am anti-skinny jeans. They're terrible for your blood circulation. That's my personal opinion. But perfect example, right? This stuff comes in, and it's out, and it's good, and it's no good every five years. And there's, there's no um, exemption to the, the religious world, just generally speaking. Every single month, I, I feel like I hear somebody who is talking about the, uh, the, the new thing they have, which will help us to find the ultimate fulfillment, meaning, and happiness in life. They are what we call in the Christian world zeitgeists, the spirits of the age that somebody proclaims to have to make your life better. The problem is, is after like 10 months, when, when the book gets off the, the bestseller list, then you're left with an antiquated idea and somebody that writes a new book. Years ago, um, I share with you the most embarrassing example. It was in a different context, but the most embarrassing example that I personally experienced of fad-based living in my life. And this is your early and perhaps only Christmas gift for me. I'm going to share it with you again. Um, I was 17, and I was uh, truly coerced by some good friends of mine to embrace what was a major cultural fad for about six months in the, uh, the late the, the mid-90s. And uh, I don't know if you remember, hopefully not, but do you remember that day and age where, where people started wearing their pants backwards? Anybody remember that? Okay, one person raising their hands, right? That's good, too. That's good. Hopefully you didn't do it. But um, uh, I've never really been susceptible to peer pressure. I've kind of almost been a rock against that most of my days. But for some reason, um, this week of my life, I, I took one for the team and decided to do this. Everybody went out. And um, it was unquestionably one of the dumbest and most embarrassing things I ever did in my life. And uh, I, I recognized very quickly that there are reasons why you should not wear your pants backwards. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to go to the bathroom with your pants on backwards, but it doesn't, it doesn't work really well because your pants were designed uh, to be a certain way. And you probably never attempted to use the restroom with pants on backwards because you saw the stupidity in, in doing this. And so um, it doesn't work well. There's a reason there's kind of an intentional design by Levi and Strauss to put zippers and buttons on the front of your pants, right? And so that was a big thing, like for six months. And although I did it one night, I watched people do it for six months afterwards. People were out doing it all the time. And then just, just as quick as it came, it, it went away, and for very good reason. Now, this highlights, in, in a silly way, obviously, it, there can be some serious parallels to this, that people are susceptible to this type of stuff. There is no person, organization, or entity that is exempt from falling victim to the new and better philosophy that seems to permeate our culture. Um, and, and this is prevalent even in the life of the church and the Christian. So uh, just a general survey of the church world shows that there have been a lot of ideas over the past hundred years that people have flocked to, the newest and greatest things. And most of them have faded into oblivion. You know, you had like fundamentalism, that was a big deal, which birthed moralism in the church world. You had the church growth slash seeker movement thing that went on, the purpose-driven thing, uh, the emerging and emergent church. There's, there's a million things that have happened and the one that seems most evident to me today, the new thing, if you will, is uh, mass groups of professing Christians who, who actually have walked away from the essential tenets of the faith, um, the things that make the Christian faith the Christian faith, the things that make Jesus Jesus. They've just said, I don't believe these anymore, yet I'm going to still call myself Christian. And that's kind of hard to understand. But it is, again, it's a, it's a modern spirit. It's a, it's a reality that there is something that we believe is better or newer or more sophisticated or savvy than in some senses what are the timeless truths of the, of the Christian faith, the things that don't change. And so in the past five years, 
this idea of mission, which is largely why we see every city has 100 church plants in it now, in the same way that uh, 50 years ago, every country had 10,000 missionaries sent to them. It's like the same idea in a different application. In the past five years, it seemed that, that being a church on mission or a missional church, a church really burdened for caring for our neighbors in the name of Jesus was the next thing. The bookstores were flooded with it. Works were uh, written on the subject. Pastors were preaching about it. Conferences were organized around it. And all this went really well for a few years, and then it just kind of faded away. And I'll spare you the new things that seem to be out there. Many churches embraced this and then just walked away from it. And unlike a stupid thing like wearing your pants backwards, there actually is a pretty serious implication of walking away from the hard attitude of mission. This isn't a fad. It actually is something very substantial in the Christian faith. And the real danger with moving away from being a church that, that values the scent nature of, Christi- of what Christianity is, is that um, this is not a trend. It's actually a hard attitude deeply rooted in the reality of who our God is. And so when you move away from a fad, you move away from a fad. When you move away from a missional heart, you actually move away from, from God. That's an evidence of us walking away from the way that God is wired, who he is, and the way that he calls us to be. You're leaving him in part when you walk away from mission. It's moving away from the main message of the Christmas story. To move away from being a people who, at great expense to themselves, are actively living in, loving, and laboring for their neighbor in the name of Jesus. Jesus does this, except his name is Jesus. That's what happens in the manger. He leaves a great environment at great risk to himself to live sacrificially for the sake of others. And this is a very common theme in the Bible. We know this because in the scripture, the mission of God is both ancient and eternal. And so think about that statement. It's ancient, meaning it's always been in the faith. From the very first days of Israel, God had set them apart to become a nation who blessed the nations. They were supposed to spread the grace of God. Mission has always existed in time as we know it, but it's also eternal because if you think about this, God has always existed. And so when we talk about this idea of mission, it doesn't just begin in the manger. I like to say that it's fulfilled in the manger. The climax of mission takes place in what we celebrate at Christmas. Because it really wasn't as if God has you know, planned the world, and then he was shocked or surprised when we fell away from him. The, the, one of the hard truths of the Christian faith is that we have fallen away from God because of sin. But if we understand the grace of God through that, it actually paints something pretty powerful about who God is and the way that he loves us. God knows who we are. God knows who we would be. And he created us knowing that, that we would make his life very difficult. He created us knowing that we would need a savior who doesn't, doesn't just love us, but relentlessly pursues us. And I think if you understand the nature of mission like this, it actually makes God very beautiful. Because it means that God has always been thinking of us. Think about that. Mission always was, and our fall was always going to be. But God knew who we were. And because of that, he knew who we were going to become. He was thinking about us. And he, he had us on his heart and in his mind. This was always the plan for him to treat us like this, to love us like this. And the greatest evidence we have of this is what we are preparing to celebrate on December 25th. The fact that Jesus has come, or maybe we might better say, and who knows, maybe our worship team will write the next great hymn that communicates this. We might be more accurate in saying that Jesus was sent by God to reveal his love for us. He didn't accidentally stumble into the manger. He was purposely put there at the time when God saw fit to, to maximize the grace that humanity could experience through his presence on earth. That's the essence of what the manger is and why he's come. And this really does lead me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. And we'll start talking about this today, but it will serve as a springboard for, our, uh, for the next weeks. 
how is Jesus' mission, we, we understand to a certain degree now what it represents, that God reveals himself to us. How is his mission in the manger supposed to affect the way that we live our lives? Because we, we ask you guys each week to say, what is Jesus saying to me and what do I do about that? For a very important reason. Whatever God says typically requires action. And so the nature of who Jesus is in the manger, it, it has, there's an action step for us. Jesus' revealed mission in the manger shows us that in every way God loves us and is for us. This is one of the, one of the most encouraging truths about the Christian faith. We don't, only, we don't only hear this proclamation at Christmas. We hear it at Easter. We hear it in just about every passage of the Bible. But the inception of God being for us, as far as the, the ultimate way he is for us through his son, takes place in what we think about this month. Because Jesus' birth is the greatest example that we have in the Christian faith as a Savior living sacrificially for the benefit of others. I want to explain a little bit what I mean by this, because although there are tons of people, more people on the earth right now, that they might agree with this, this statement, right? The idea of, of um, they, they like the idea of somebody living for them. There are lots of people who don't um, embrace the idea that Jesus is the ultimate example of somebody living for them. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, our culture, our world loves a good Savior story. And when we think of saviors, uh, saviors tend to have uh, very sensational elements to them. And one of the reasons, or one, of the, one of the benefits, I think, of meeting in a movie theater is that on a pretty regular basis, all we have to do is look up and down this hall to see the reality of this statement. So we're sitting in a movie theater right now, and all of these films are designed to, to touch into some kind of a human emotion for us. And with a lot of these films, not all of them, but with this type of genre, which is typically the blockbuster genre, what we find is that uh, movies, uh, the, the names change, the characters change, but the plot lines typically do not. People like savior stories. And the most recent example we have of this, uh, at least for this season, is the, the phenomenon called The Hunger Games. It's another blockbuster film. I haven't seen them. I had a little bit of an experience with the book, and so I'm going to probably grossly undersell the story right now. But my job is not to explain to you the plot of the movie. It's to give you the 10-cent version of what it's about. Essentially, the movie portrays a future world in ruins. Poverty, suffering, and hunger rule the day, right? That's the title. Essentially, the world's in trouble. And then you have a person, her name's Katniss Everdeen, who at great risk to her own life stands against the powers of darkness and oppression in the world to save the world. She's, again, a pillar of righteousness in a world that's plagued with unrighteousness and injustice. The popularity of films like this point out that our culture loves a good savior story. We, we love this stuff. Even look at the, the Star Wars franchise. The same idea is present in that. There's, there's a redemptive figure, a savior, if you will, who takes one for the team and makes things better in the darkest hours of the world, whatever world that is in the fictional element. The popularity of films like this really point out that our culture loves a good savior story. We love a story where there's a person who selflessly risks everything they have and are, even to the point, although it pains us to see it happen, even to the point of giving their own life for a cause greater than themselves. That might hurt us, narratively speaking, but it etches the reality of what they stood for into our hearts. It gives you that that weird feeling in your stomach, but it really solidifies that they were serious about what they were doing. We love a story where somebody is directly, they put themselves in the line of fire to make our world and lives better. And the reason we love stories like this is because we've been made in God's image. And stories like that are made in the image of the great to save the world story ever known, the one we celebrate and refl- reflect upon in Jesus' first coming, his advent. And so when God puts himself in the manger, think about this. He plunges himself directly into the line of fire for our good. That's what the stories tell us. That's what his life reveals. He never exempts himself from the realities and hardships of being human in the world. And for good reason, his willingness to do this shows us that he loves us and that he is for us. And he does these things in pretty powerful ways. But the, the biggest way we, that he has done this, at least 
as far as the scriptural teaching goes, I've, I read this a couple of times a year to you. I want to read it to you again. Um, God shows us how much he's for us in the way he chooses to live for us, sacrificially live for us and suffer for us. And while there are many verses that teach this, I don't think any verse is as pointed as what we read in Hebrews two fourteen through 18. The writer of Hebrews tells us, since we've been made with flesh and blood, it was for this reason, we've been made like Jesus is what he's saying. It was for this reason that Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And so once again, we have a, an extraordinary distinction of what Jesus is and who, who, what he does for us. You can search the religions of the world. I make this claim a lot when we talk about the central nature of Jesus because he's just pretty amazing. You can search the religions of the world, but you do not find and will not find a God who does this, who willingly subjects himself to suffering and hardship like this because of our sin. You will never find another person, a savior figure in any religion, who comes to earth and subjects himself to the very same life that we live. You know, Hebrew says he's like a brother or sister. He's like the same spiritual substance as, as your physical brother and sister, born like you, lived like you, looks like you, worked like you, laughed like you, suffered like you, and then died for you. Jesus in the manger shows us that God isn't, he wasn't just like calculating what the risk would be to send Jesus here. He actually knew what the risk would be. He knew that the beautiful baby in the manger would eventually end up on the cross. He takes a guaranteed risk to show his love for us because God knows the outcome. And the perfect Christ child we sing about in these hymns, his beloved son who we sing about and think about and, and reminisce over, these songs that have shaped how we understand Christmas, eventually he is subjected to the same hardships we deal with on a daily basis. And this is perhaps what I think is the most profound truth of, the, of Jesus in the manger, at least where he's going as he grows. He doesn't choose to deal with us from a distance or on the fringes of humanity. You know, he's not up in heaven orchestrating things, although he has that authority. Jesus, uh, God sends him to earth. The light of the world rolls his sleeves up and immerses himself in a world that he knows will reject and crucify him. And think about this. Philippians highlights this idea. We're going to be teaching through that in the new year. But there's a great verse, and I'll give you my Orzo 1-1 paraphrase of it in Philippians 2. It's the first Christological hymn that the early church sang. Even though he was fully God, he didn't endow himself with the divine powers that allowed him to escape suffering, emotion, hardship, rejection, pain, and sorrow. In other words, he doesn't say, I'm God, I can get out of this stuff. He says, I'm God, I'm going to use my power to ensure that I'm in the middle of this stuff. I'm going to ensure that I bear the same burdens, sufferings, joys, happiness, and trials that you do. I'm going to come to earth to make sure that I do everything you do, barring sin, so that when we endure them, he could empathize with us and he could help us get through them. He suffers on earth so that we can have a hope in our suffering and in our trial. And that's why Hebrews says, again, another paraphrase, when you suffer, when you are in trial, Jesus does not just know about what you're going through. He doesn't just know about the good or the bad. He literally knows what you're going through in life because he has been through the good and the bad. He has had the trials and the suffering and the, 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 the depressive moments on the cross wondering where his father was and the happy moments on the top of the mountain and the experiences with the kids that made him so mild. He's had them all. He has been through it so that when we go through it, we know he is with us because he is for us. And he loves us. And so I'll close with this. What kind of a God loves us like that? What kind of a God lives for his people like that? The ironies of the faith, what kind of a God trades glory and power for humility and suffering? Kingship, he wears the crown and holds the scepter, but he lays it down to become the chief of servants. He trades the comfort of a perfect love and unity with his Father in heaven and his spirit for the rejection of, 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 uh, and death on earth.
What kind of a God does that? Well, the manger answers the question for us. It's a God who loves us. A God who through the incarnation says, I'm for you and you matter to me. And if you ever doubt that, you know, when we talk about the great church calendar, today we celebrate the birth of Jesus. In the spring, we think about the cross and the resurrection. If it's as if Christmas wasn't enough for us, that God is for us. Easter then is like the end cap. The two great bookends in the calendar yeah, that show us God is for us and loves us. If ever you doubt if you are loved or cared for, you need to think about is who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And what he has done for you is fulfilled the mission of God, a mission that God revealed to us, a mission that, God, that, that through God says to the world, I'm so for you that I'm willing to love, live, suffer, and die for you. And that statement is an important one to remember, and it will serve as a springboard for what we're going to talk about in the weeks that follow. Think about this. My close is here. If Jesus' manger shows us that God is for us, right? That's the reality of the manger. God is for us. Then for those of us that claim to be for God, for those of us that say we love him and want to serve him, we are expected to live for other people in the same way Jesus does for us. Not perfectly, but if God is for us, the bottom line is we are to be for other people in the same way that Jesus was for us. And next week, we're going to begin talking a little bit about how, how practically the manger can shape our lives, how it can help us to live like Jesus did. Because those of us who are in Christ are called to adopt the same heart attitude, like Hebrews says. We're made in that image. So this morning as we close, remember, Christ was born in a manger uh, to show you and me just how much God loves us and to show us that God wants to know us. And I want you to think about that today as we move into response time. Ask yourself, is, is it time, no matter where you are, for you to draw near to God for the first time or again in the same way that God first drew near to you? God doesn't say, come to me. He does say that, but he said that after he came to you. And so if you're in Christ, ask yourself if you're experiencing a God who is humble, a God who is gracious, a God who has suffered for you so he can relate to you, a God who is always there for you no matter where you are, how far you feel you are away from him in life. If you find yourself this morning looking to other things for relational fulfillment, let me encourage you to stop looking elsewhere and to start looking to Jesus. As I say every week, as we think about Christmas and the mission of God, what is Jesus saying to you about how sent your life is and what are you going to do about that? The difference over these next weeks is that rather than having those two questions before you, we're going to have a prayer for you to think and pray and process. I pray you'll take a picture of it, write it down, meditate on it this week and the weeks that follow. We will think about this each week until Christmas and again at the creek. So to help you answer those questions, uh, uh, think about this prayer that will be behind us as we move into response time. This Christmas season lets unite our voices before God and ask him to give us a renewed burden for his mission and the people of our world that he has put in our paths. Let's ask him to help us want to pour out the very same love Jesus poured out on us 2,000 years ago when he came to us in the manger. And as you pray along those lines, pray with me now. Father in heaven, thank you for, for, for Christmas. Many meanings that it has in our culture, but one primary one you want us to understand, that you are God, you are real, and you have come. You've not just come to give us a historical event in the Christian faith. You've come to give us an historical event that, that truly shapes the future forever until your return. May today be the day that we dwell deeply in who you are. May today be the day that we try to genuinely understand what we mean when we say that you have come, you have been sent, and you send us in the same way. God, I pray today would be the day that we, we reflect on two important things. The devout and genuine love you have for us and the way that genuine love is meant to shape the way we love and care for others. Guide our hearts and our thoughts now during this time of response. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.